And so I'd like to share it with you. So where this comes from is thinking and praying about our situation to do with COVID-19 in particular, thinking about what church would, will look like in the next few weeks, months, or even years to come, in what ways might it be similar, what ways might it be different, as well as other things going on in my life, perhaps your lives, our community life, things to do with the racism challenges that we have at the moment and the need to tackle that wisely and, and, and urgently. There's so many things sort of up in the atmosphere. And it occurs to me that I think most people would quite like it if a spiritually wise person were able to come along and give us the formula for what we're meant to do and how we're meant to be, whether that's personally or as a church. We want some kind of Holy Spirit-inspired Gandalf figure to come along and touch us with his staff and give us instant wise insight. I don't know who the equivalent for Gandalf would be on this call here today. It could be Garth. He's got the beard. Um, it certainly could be Bill with the hair and the beard. Uh, perhaps uh, John. I, I don't know. But um, it, it, I think a lot of people are waiting for that to happen. And I think the, the truth is that you and I are all spirit-filled people. We're all filled with the Spirit of Christ. There's no reason why somebody else should have all the insight. We can have it personally and collectively together. In fact, if we're all Spirit-inspired people, we will surely find the Spirit's will for us during this time and post-COVID or whatever the future is bringing. We need to figure out how to act in faith now and not wait for some kind of thing to happen. God is guiding his church now. He guides his church all the time. He loves his church. And that thought led me to think back to how the Holy Spirit led the church in the New Testament. And what we're going to do right now is I'm going to do a brief um, survey of the activity of the Holy Spirit in the first part of the book of Acts, leading us up to Antioch, and then see what lessons might be relevant for us in Antioch in Acts 11 to do with the church there and Barnabas that you talked about, Bill. So thanks for that. So my first point, and really perhaps the main point of the whole lesson today, is that it is the Spirit who moves his church. It's the Spirit who moves God's church. Always has, always will, if the church allows him to move his church. And that's kind of up to us to allow him to do that. So let's think for a minute about the way that the Holy Spirit moved in the book of Acts. If we go back to Acts chapter 2, we know that uh, Jesus told his disciples to wait for the power that would come to them from on high, to wait for the Holy Spirit that's been promised. He tells them to wait. They do their waiting. They pray in the upper room. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes, right? And the Spirit comes in a way they weren't expecting. They knew the Spirit was coming, but they had no idea what it was going to be like. And they, they hear this sound like a violent wind. They hear the, see the things that look like tongues of fire uh, landing on them. They start to speak in all these different languages, which is very extraordinary not only to them because they didn't weren't able to do that up until now, and extraordinary to the people that they preached to, the crowd that were there from all over the uh, the world at the time coming to the festival, and uh, the people there uh, have various explanations, and one of them is they must be drunk. Uh, it's a bit like perhaps what happened last weekend when the lockdown was lifted and people could go back to the pubs, and uh, there seemed to be. Uh, rather a lot of drunkenness as a result. But they, they said, no, 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 we're not drunk. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God. And, and so Peter preaches what is effectively the first Christian sermon. And 3,000 people are baptized that day. At least 3,000. It could be more because I might be counting only the men, which is what was the common way of counting in those days. So there may have been equally 3,000 women. But there are thousands of people baptized into Christ. The Spirit begins with a bang. 
the spirit begins his work in the church with a bang and it's not exactly how they expected they did not know exactly what was going to happen and this carries on the spirit inspires peter to preach and heal he heals the beggar in chapter three and then a, a, a sermon uh, is given uh, and, and convinces more people and then there's the first bit of persecution where they're hauled before the before the sadducees in acts chapter four and the sanhedrin and they're told not to preach in the name of jesus which they say well we can't really do that and then the church gathers to pray, right? Their response to the work of the Spirit and the persecution is to gather to pray. So they get together in, at the end of chapter 4, and they recognize that it is the Holy Spirit who is at work. That's what they see. They see it's the Holy Spirit, verse 25, and they pray. And at the end of that prayer, what happens? The place where they were meeting was literally shaken in some way. We don't know exactly what that was like, but it was enough to be a feeling like a shake, shaking. I don't know if that's going to happen in your household today. don't know what happens with Zoom, but nonetheless, maybe something like that. And so there's incredible shaking. And it says at the end of it, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So they carried on the work by the power of the Spirit. And then they have, they have this amazing community of sharing together, which is Spirit-inspired. Ananias and Sapphira are killed as a refinement of the Spirit, of the church, which is pretty intense. The, the apostles carry on healing through the power of the Spirit of Christ in them. Then there's more persecution in chapter 5, and this time they're flogged. The Holy Spirit allows them to be flogged. This happens, and they're told not to speak in the name of Jesus, but they can't stop. They go on rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts, house to house, they can't stop preaching and teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. The good news. And then we come to the first uh, problematic moment in, in, inside the church itself in Acts chapter 6. And the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews, there's some complaints going on because there seems to be some favoritism. People are being overlooked. So there's a, this is a major problem for the, for the New Testament church. And what do the apostles do? Who do they select? They say we need people who are full of the spirit and wisdom. Spirit is what matters to them. Spirit and wisdom, they turn it over to them. They choose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and others. And they, they, they sort it all out. So these are spirit-filled men. And then what happens to Stephen? He's just been chosen to wait on tables and sort out these problems. He's a spirit-filled man. The next thing that happens to him is he's arrested. He's taken before a crowd. He uh, gives a great speech, which includes a lot of uh, mention of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 7. And at the end of it, he is stoned to death. Again, not exactly what anybody was expecting. Stephen didn't wake up that day expecting that. The church didn't expect that. It's not something Jesus said that this is going to happen on this day at this time to you, Stephen. It was a shock, you can believe, right? In Acts chapter 7, what happens at the end? He says, just before he dies, don't hold this against them, Lord. Just like Jesus on the cross who said, Father, forgive them, right? I mean, imitating the heart of Jesus, I think, by the power of the Spirit, of the Spirit of Christ in him. It's that that's empowering him and strengthening him to do what is, humanly speaking, unreasonable and, and, it, and maybe even impossible. So he does that, he dies, and then Saul is there giving approval to all this. And then it says in Acts 8 verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the works. They were scattered because of the persecution, all the church, except for the apostles scattered and preached the word wherever they went. And what did they do? Um, Philip goes to uh, Samaria, of all places, that heretical place, Samaria, the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. But he goes there and he finds the gospel takes root. And the spirit is powerful there with Simon and all that goes on. The spirit is given at the laying of the apostles' hands. And there's more refining there for Simon. I mean, extraordinary things. And then Philip in the Ethiopian, and the Spirit speaks to Philip to go and speak to the Ethiopian. It teaches him about Jesus. He's baptized into Christ. The Spirit takes him away again. It's all about the Spirit. And then Acts chapter 9, we get Saul, 
who becomes Paul, the arch persecutor of the church, someone against the church, what does he do? He encounters the spirit of the living, risen Christ on the road to Damascus. It transforms his life. It changes him completely to a 180 degree turn now from being a persecutor to being a preacher of the gospel. This is all by the power of the spirit. And uh, on we go, Ananias, uh, Aeonus and, and Dorcas. And then in chapter 10, in chapter 10, uh, Peter and God have an argument where Peter has the dream about the animals and all that stuff. And, and basically God says to him, you need to go to this, this Gentile's house. And Peter says, "This is what? I never eaten anything unclean. I'm a good uh, Christian Jew. I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm a Jew and I, I'm not going to do that kind of thing. And God says, you need to go. His messengers are coming. You need to go to Cornelius, to a Gentile's house. And so Peter fortunately sees reason and doesn't uh, try to out-argue God here. And he goes to Cornelius' house and he goes there and he mentions the fact that I'm not really meant to be here in a Gentile's house, but God sent me, so here I am. And then he starts to preach about Jesus and he begins his sermon and he says he hasn't even got very far into it when he says that the Spirit comes onto Cornelius and all the people in his household and uh, Peter recognizes that it is the Spirit and so he agrees they must be baptized and they are baptized into Christ and of course um, that gets him in trouble with the Jews back in Jerusalem um, but he explains it and they're like oh so even the Gentiles oh I, I, okay well I didn't, didn't realize this and of course from our perspective we look back and we think it was obvious but when Jesus said to them you'll preach the gospel in Jerusalem Judea Samaria and to the ends of the earth they didn't understand yet that it meant Gentiles not becoming Jews but Gentiles following Jesus without becoming Jews it was so extraordinary for them the Holy Spirit opened their, their eyes the Holy Spirit opened the doors the Holy Spirit directed where they went the Holy Spirit was was driving was moving was inspiring the church and Christians to do what they'd never done before, had never been expected, at, at, at things that were very uncomfortable for them. This goes on and on and on until we reach Antioch, which we'll come to more specifically in just a moment. But before we talk about Antioch, it's so important we see it is the Spirit who moves God's church. In other words, it's not people, it's not structures, it's not organizations, it's not, frankly, even leaders. I mean, there's an element of leadership to any church, and I'm part of that, I guess. But it's not leaders that move the church. It's not really leaders that direct the affairs of the church. And on some human level, yes, but really, in terms of where are we going as a church? Where is Christendom going? Where are we as a congregation going? Where am I and you and us personally going? It must be that we, 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 we find the right way to connect with what the Spirit is revealing us and showing us and prompting us to do and cooperate with the Spirit. Because as much as we are cooperating with the Spirit, we're cooperating with God's desire and hopes and dreams for his church. It is the Spirit who moves the church. What does that feel like to the church? Or what it felt like in the early church? It felt uncomfortable as they experienced the unexpected and unprecedented uh, events. So it's normal, I would say, for God's church, inspired by the Spirit, to go through things that are, that are unprecedented, to go through things that they didn't expect, and to go through things that make them, make us, very uncomfortable. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but generally speaking, I, I don't aim at being uncomfortable. Um, I don't aim at the unexpected continuing continuing to happen in my life. I don't mind a little bit of adventure, but I quite like to be in control of the adventure. But when you're following the Holy Spirit, and when you're a church following the Holy Spirit, 
you, you don't get to be in control. In fact, in fact, if you try to be in control, it all goes wrong. If we try and control the spirit, if we can try, try and control the way church is meant to be, we're going to be in opposition to the spirit. We're not going to see him do what he can do. We're not going to experience all the wonderful things he can do, as we see in the first 10, 11 chapters in the book of Acts right here, and, and more, but just for now, just that passage there. I would say this, that messiness, not neatness, in the life of the church is more likely evidence that the spirit is at move, is moving and that we are in tune with and moving with the spirit. Messiness, not neatness, is more likely evidence of the spirit being at work. As true of your life and my life is true of our community church life. We're not aiming at neatness. We're not aiming at tidiness. I know many of us parents are aiming at neatness and tidiness training with our children. That's a different thing. I'm not talking about that. You can train that into your children if you can or your grandchildren. But I'm talking about the spirit's work in the church. Our aim as a church is not to be neat. It's not to be tidy. It's not to be predictable. Our aim as a church is not necessarily also to be uh, chaotic, but our aim as a church is to allow the, the Spirit to do in us and through us whatever He wants, even if it's messy, even if it's uncomfortable. That's got to be our aim. What happens in Antioch, which we'll look at in a moment, and it was read earlier, is a consequence of what looked like bad news in Acts chapter 8. Great persecution breaks out against the church. All except the apostles are scattered. They're scattered everywhere. It looks like bad news, but Antioch is a result. Antioch is good news because of the mess in Acts 8. Mess leads to good things in this way, when it's a mess that's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I wonder whether this time for us as a church, this COVID-19, all this stuff, whether this might be a kind of Acts 8, Acts 11 experience for us. Because it's nothing small, is it? It's not like everything's going to be back to normal in six months. I don't think that's going to be the case. So what insights might we get from this? Um, for those of us who've been around a while in our congregations in the Churches of Christ, we know that we've been through quite a few sort of phases over the last 15, 20 years. We've been through some, some exciting times. We've been through some tragic times. We've been through some recovery, some stabilization, some sort of experience of the new normal. Um, we've been through some growth, which is wonderful. Uh, we've had a, a, a more direct focus on the next generation of students and teens and various things like that. And that's, that's really good. I mean, and elders in some parts of our churches. I think this is all really good. But I wonder whether the progress has not been as, as it could have been, whether in Watford or elsewhere. Because maybe we've, not, we've, we've wanted to limit the amount of messiness that we allow God to bring into our lives via the Holy Spirit. So I'm not sure it's time for a revolution, but I wonder if it's time for a vision shift. A vision shift away from attempting to keep things normal and stable to saying, Spirit, why don't you do what you want to do? And my job and our job is to be in tune with that and to cooperate with that because it seems that otherwise we're not going to experience the sorts of things that we see in the book of Acts in the way that we could. So now let's look at Antioch specifically and look at some things that I, I hope we can learn from that. So that, that's all by way of uh, context and background. In Acts chapter 11 in Antioch, a couple of things. It says that some of the people that were scattered went to Antioch, some men from uh, Cy Cyprus and Cyrene. 
some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks. Began to speak to Greeks also. So what the previous verse, it says that they'd been speaking only to Jews. But here they start speaking to Greeks, telling them the good news of the Lord Jesus. Lord's hand is with them. A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So it's, very, it's, very, it's great news. It's good. But there's a, there's a lot to this. They start speaking to Greeks. Now, up until this time, no one has done this. Yes, Peter went to the house of Cornelius. Yes, we see the Ethiopian. Yes, we see, <clears throat> we see the odd Gentile sort of mentioned. But here we see uh, a deliberate initiative taken to go and speak to non-Jewish people, to these Greeks. That's uh, who they are. And they are converted to Christ. Um, and there's a lot of them, right? We know there's a large number. The thing about these men who are unnamed, right, and presumably there were women involved as well here, but um, the thing about these men from Cyprus and Cyrene is we, we don't know their names. They're not, they're not like famous, you know, they're not, we don't know who they are. Um, they're not an apostle, Peter, they're not Barnabas, they're not anybody that was well known, it appears. They're just some men from Cyprus and Cyrene. They go to Antioch, they see some Greeks, and they think, I don't know why they think it, we don't know. But they think, you know what, no one's talked to Greeks before. No one's taken this step. I, as far as we know, there's no, there's no edict. You know, it's not like Jerusalem have told us we should do this. We, we, we don't have any precedent. But why don't we go and talk to some Greeks? And I think it's easy for us to miss the significance of this. This was a huge paradigm shift for them. This was like something unimaginable up until this time. To go and speak to Greeks was, was revolutionary. And they go and do that, and they do it, they're not maverick, by the way, they're not like some uh, maverick person, because they're doing it in community. It says men from Cyprus and Cyrene, so they do it as, a, as some kind of group. They must, I guess, have discussed it. And they go and speak to the Greeks, and it tells us something. It tells us that the, the spirit is entrepreneurial by nature. I, I think this is something about the Holy Spirit. The spirit is always breaking new ground. The spirit's always moving us. The spirit is, in that sense, entrepreneurial. These men didn't need permission. Do you see this? They didn't need permission. They just got on with something they had a conviction about. They wanted people to know the good news about Jesus, so they just, they just got on with it. They didn't need permission. I mean, they didn't, didn't wait for some kind of authorization. They just got on with it. And I think one of the signs of the work of the Spirit is that people who follow Jesus get on with taking initiative to, to bring the kingdom into reality wherever we are, wherever we can influence that. We're not waiting for somebody to tell us it's the right thing to do. We're saying, what can I do? Not what should I do or what could I do or what's allowed to do, but what can I do? And the truth is that you and I can do things that are very different from each other, that you can do things I can't do. You can influence people I can't influence. You can deal with situations I can't deal with and vice versa. And as a church, we can do things in Watford that maybe can't be done in, in some other town or city or place. we got some things to do that are only for us to do. And everybody matters. Every single person on this call, over on my screen here, you all matter. You've all got something that the Spirit can help you to do. There's something for you to do, but only you can do it. And what we're trying to do is make the kingdoms, the beauty of God's kingdom more a reality in this world, right? In this context, it's mostly about bringing the good news of Jesus to people so that they uh, follow Jesus. But, but the, the broader point is it's about the kingdom. And so what do we pray? We pray in Matthew 6 in what's called the Lord's Prayer. We pray, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, 
we're not just praying for the end times there that bring the kingdom because the kingdom is already here right jesus said the kingdom is among you we're we're the agents of the kingdom bringing uh, manifesting the kingdom to the people around us the best we can in some limited fashion right the ultimate expression of the kingdom is in the next new new heaven and new earth but we are bringing kingdom life kingdom reality into into the present day for the people that can experience it around us and it's a beautiful thing and so what it is it's about bringing god's will we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's certainly people following Jesus, but it's more than that. It's healing what is broken. What happened in Eden, everything got damaged and, and, and broken and destroyed and corrupted. We are the people refining that. So what's corrupted is, is made beautiful again. What's damaged is repaired. What is ugly is made beautiful again, whether that's the environment. Whether it's a river or a wood or a, or a pond in a, in a garden like Penny's done for our garden, whether it's the environment or whether it's social justice matters and racial justice matters and bringing justice to people or whether it's healing people in their marriages and, uh, and, and parents with children and bringing about reconciliation and being peacemakers as it says in the Beatitudes or whether it's helping someone be reconciled with God so that they can actually become a Christian, a follower of, of Jesus and find the joy of the Holy Spirit and the peace that passes understanding. Whatever the expression of the kingdom is, we have a part to play. We're bringing the kingdom to earth. And it happens because we are spirit-filled people who take initiative prompted by the Spirit to do what the Spirit's will is. That's what it's about. It's what church is about. It's what the Christian life is about. And I think we know this, but, you know, we know that it's about following Jesus. It's not just about turning up on a Sunday. We're not just, if you like, Sunday churchgoers. That's not who we are. We're people who follow Jesus. But what does it mean? At least part of what it means is being sensitive to the Spirit, responding with initiative, and doing what you and I can to make the kingdom reality, the beauty of the kingdom, more visible, more real around us and in the world in which we live. And the impact is incalculable. As Bill said, I appreciate what you said, Bill. As Bill said, you know, maybe one person like one Barnabas can change everything. Yeah, these men from Cyprus and Cyrene changed everything. Because the impact of Antioch is incredible. It's from Antioch that the Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their first missionary journey to Asia Minor and ultimately then to Europe. Asia Minor got evangelized, if you like. The kingdom came there, in a sense, and the kingdom came to Europe, ultimately, and maybe you could say the rest of the world because of what happened at Antioch. What would have happened if these men had not taken that initiative? What if they'd never spoken to those Greeks? What would church history be like? It might just be, the church might still be a Middle Eastern phenomenon. Might have just got stuck there somewhere in the Middle East or the Near East. We don't have to wait for permission. One of the things I love about this church, I'll be, you know, just on a personal level, right? One of the things I love about the Watford uh, church community is that um, we do get on with stuff. Um, you know, I, um, I'm, I'm honoured to be the minister, you know, whatever for, for us. But I, I know it doesn't. I know it doesn't depend on me. I mean, I know it doesn't theologically because it's the spirit. But I also know it doesn't because of my experience here. This. This is a wonderful group. We, we, by, we, by nature, by habit, we do take initiative. I hear accidentally about the things that are being done. I like that, you know. Uh, I'll hear somebody was helping somebody with this, that, and the other, reaching out to somebody, um, helping someone who's not very well off and helping them with their grieving or whatever it is. I think it's a wonderful thing. We do, by nature, take permission. But I, I would like to encourage us to do two things. And one is to is to wonder if we could do more 
we take more initiative, not looking for permission. And also wonder whether what, the, whether what we are doing is inspired by the Holy Spirit, if we're praying enough about that. It only takes one person, like a Barnabas, or like these men from Cyprus and Cyrene. We don't need permission, we just need initiative. It might be messy. I think it will be. But that's not a bad thing. In the mess, God gets to work. God gets healing. God gets working. God gets saving. God gets blessing. It's how it works. So we see these people took initiative. They didn't need permission. But we also see the way that Barnabas played a role. So secondly, let's talk about Barnabas a little bit. And, um, and then we'll wrap up and take communion. Barnabas is one of those characters in the New Testament that I admire the most. He is sent from, by the church in Jerusalem to Antioch. He's in Jerusalem. They hear about what's going on in Antioch. It is unprecedented. They would like to know what's going on. That's fair enough. They send Barnabas. But notice they send Barnabas. Why do they send Barnabas? I think they send Barnabas because, firstly, because he's a Cypriot. And we know that from other passages. And some of these men that were doing this were from Cyprus. So there's a kind of connection there. Also, I think they sent Barnabas because he's a bridge builder. We know the way that he brings Paul back into the scene. He's a, he bridges that challenge there with Saul, Paul, now getting involved. Uh, he's known as the son of encouragement. Uh, so they want to send somebody who's going to go to Antioch to investigate a contra controversial situation but he's going to go there with an open mind and an open heart. In other words, what Jerusalem, the, the mother church in Jerusalem, their perspective on hearing this unexpected news, their perspective is they are curious, not controlling. They're curious, not controlling. And that's why they send Barnabas, not James. You know, James was more the Jewish champion of Jewish Jewishness within Christendom. They don't send James. They don't send even Peter. They send Barnabas because they're curious. They're not controlling. They want to know what's going on, but they don't have any desire to cause a problem if it's God's work. So Barnabas goes, he sees the good that's going on. He sees God's hand at work. He encourages them to remain true to the Lord and do it all with all their heart. He pours petrol on their fire, not the wet blanket of suspicion. He's just got a great spirit about him. He's the only man described as good, using that word, by Luke in the whole of the Gospel of Luke and, uh, and the book of Acts. He's a good man. In other words, he turns up with this attitude, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? I think one of the roles we play with each other in this church is to encourage each other's faith and to say to each other, what can I do to help you? And that's whether one is recognized as some kind of leader or not the attitude has got to be what can i do to help and i think you know i've been in various roles of leadership for a long time and i think sadly at times in the past people have come up to me with ideas and um, i've been a little skeptical or um or cynical or i might not be that way outwardly but inwardly i can see oh, i don't think that'll work mm, don't think you're ready for that mm, no it doesn't really fit with my plans for the church and it's too much about me. It's not enough about the spirit. I think we've got to we've got to get ourselves out of the way. Not only leaders, but I think each other. We've got to get each out of each other's way in some ways to let the spirit move. And then we've got to support each other with what can I do to help? 
And maybe those are conversations we can have in our fellowship. Is we've got ideas, great. What can I do to help? That seems to be Barnabas's attitude. He he builds on the good. He shows respect to the Antioch disciples. He doesn't show a controlling attitude. He uh, makes a big difference to unity and cooperation because he then that's, there's harmony between Jerusalem and Antioch. He engenders respect, uh, which otherwise could have been damaged by suspicion and control. And then he goes to help by not only encouraging them, but saying, I know someone who could help this situation. I'll go and get Paul. I mean, this was a lot of work for him to go to Tarsus. He had to spend time and energy and probably money going to Tarsus. And he says he went to look for Saul. And in the Greek, the word look means a really exhaustive search. So it wasn't like he just went and knocked on Saul's door. It took him a while. It was quite a lot of effort to find Saul. He gets Saul. He brings into Antioch and it pours petrol on the fire of the church. And they taught great numbers of people. A lot of people become Christians. A lot of people are taught. It's strengthened as a church, ready to become that, that sending church that later on in the book of Acts, in Acts 13, we see, part, we see uh, uh, prophets and teachers and lots of different roles have been raised up in that church. And then the, Paul and Barnabas are sent out to Asia Minor and ultimately to Europe and the world because of this work that goes on here, because of Barnabas's attitude and recognizing the work of the Spirit. He brings in the odd person. Paul was the odd person, um, a very controversial figure. Sometimes we need the odd person. Maybe you consider yourself to be one of the odd people or not, and I don't necessarily mean about how you look or how you dress, but uh, we need the oddballs. We need the people who think differently to us. We don't want to be a church of people that all think the same. That's dangerous. We don't want to be the kind of church where everybody values all the same things. We don't want to be the kind of church where everybody has the same opinion about everything. We need diverse opinions. We need diverse perspectives. We need to be actually have some, we need to have some godly arguments now and again. I mean in a godly way. But we need to say, I don't think I see it that way. I don't think I see it that way. And let's do it right. But, but we need to have that freedom in Christ to, to be able to talk and be honest and then harvest and harness together all of these gifts that we have for the benefit of the kingdom of God and the people around us. But that won't happen if we're narrow. We've got to bring other people in and involve each other. Barnabas found Saul, brought him along, and it was awesome. Well, let me um, finish off by touching on a point that I shared with these other congregations. I think has relevance here, but not quite in the same way. But I'm going to share it anyway because I think it's important. Which is, I think, you know, it's good that we see on the screen here a lot of different generations um, ranging from the, um, uh, <clears throat> um, anyway, older generations through to younger generations. And uh, it's great to see that, that spread. I think it's in particular the younger amongst us. And I'm not going to define young because, mm, I don't know, it's all relative. But anyway. I think it behoves the youngest, younger among us to make sure that we are taking initiative and not waiting for the older people to give us permission or tell us what to do or inspire us even. If you're waiting for the older generation to inspire you, hopefully there's some inspiration, but that's not, that's not a Christ-like spirit to wait and expect somebody else to fire you up. It's got to come from the spirit in you. Those of us who are a little older, I'd say we need to be Barnabases, or whatever the female equivalent is. Is it a Barnabet, a Barnabina? I don't know. But um, uh, we need some Barnabases to mentor the younger. The Barnabases who are a bit older, perhaps who have seen a bit more, a bit more experience. The Barnabases who, in a sense, have had that Jerusalem experience. 
But then we need the younger ones to take initiative and to just try things. I think the Watford Church is an amazing group. I think there's still a lot more that we could do by God's Spirit if we just take more initiative, try new things. I don't know all the, what they are. I don't know that. I think that's up to us individually. That's, that's the point. It's about us taking our own initiative. But I think it's the Spirit that helps us to do this. Do you need to be a Barnabas or do you need to just take some initiative? Maybe both. The older generation aren't done yet, right? We've got a lot to give. I mean, I have some energy left. Um, usually I need a nap more often than I used to. Um, some of you on this call don't really need a nap. That's okay. But whether you need a nap or whatever, we all need a vision. And the vision for the older generation is more to do with being a part of us. And the vision for the younger generation is more to do with just getting on and trying things and doing things and finding the support from a Barnabas that will be useful to you as a spiritual mentor. At the end of this passage, it says that the disciples were called Christians first here at Antioch. It was, it was a key, key moment. It was a hinge. It's from here the gospel went to the rest, to the rest of the world. And it began, started, because some spirit-filled Christians just decided to speak to Greeks. It was uncomfortable, it was unexpected, and it was unprecedented. But that's the way the spirit moves. It seems to be that's the way the spirit likes it. They were ha happy with the mess. Barnabas was sent, and he was a great help, because he said, what can I do to help you? In their spirit-filled initiative. If if we're going to see God's Spirit do all he can through us, it's not going to be by playing it safe. And it's not going to be by going back to what the way things were and returning to the same old, same old. There's going to be freshness. I feel that freshness blowing through the church. I sense it. And I'd encourage myself and all of us to embrace it and see what God will do. If we get to take initiative by the Spirit's initiative, if we find the Barnabas, if we be a Barnabas, I think it's extraordinary what God can do. Now I hope this lesson has been an encouragement to you. I think, I think the relevance of the Watford Church will be a little different to other congregations. Um, relevance to each one of us will be a little different. That's okay. It's I don't have I don't have a list of practicals from this point, all right, I, from this lesson. I don't want to offer any because it's going to be different for each of us. I would just offer an encouragement that we pray and that we reflect and that we ask. Ask God's Spirit to inspire us, but then ask, in a sense, ask ourselves to be willing, to be willing to be made uncomfortable, to experience the unexpected and the unprecedented. And let's see what God will do. God's Spirit is powerful and he has much he can do through each one of us on this screen here and it doesn't matter how you feel right now you may feel i can't do that i'm not worthy i'm too sinful yeah well join the club um none of us are right in fact those of us who think we're worthy have more problems than those who don't that's okay jesus can handle our unworthiness the question is whether we will take our courage in our hands and step out forward and by the power of the Spirit, let, let him do what only he, only he can do. 
So I'd like to us, to, us to pray together right now, pray about this, and then we'll uh, take bread and wine to remind us that it is the Spirit of Christ that enables all of what God does. Let's pray together.